Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called The Outsider Prophet. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 18th, 2015. The story of the prophet Samuel's call in the temple of Shiloh is a Sunday school teacher's dream. It's dramatic and suspenseful. It has a pleasing narrative arc, and it's blessedly brief, always a plus with the under 10 set. More importantly, it's one of only a handful of Bible stories in which a child plays the starring role. I heard the story fairly often when I was growing up. I also heard the lessons I was supposed to absorb from it. Lessons about going to church. Samuel heard God's voice in the temple. Obeying my elders. Samuel did exactly as Eli instructed. And opening my heart to God. Samuel invited God to speak to him. But when I was a kid, those lessons didn't quite take. I was too spooked by the possibility that Samuel's story could happen to me. I knew I was supposed to feel excited at the prospect of a call from heaven. I knew the story meant that even the youngest of us have roles to play in his kingdom. I even knew what I was supposed to say if my moment in the nocturnal spotlight ever came. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But I also knew myself. I was a high-strung kid with a radar for creepy things, and I actively feared the night. I knew that if I heard a strange voice calling my name in the darkness, I wouldn't be able to speak a word for terror. I would bolt out of bed, run to my parents' room, crawl into bed between them, and refuse to budge till morning. These days, if I hear a voice in the night, I probably won't call up my parents. But I will question my sanity, or cut back on caffeine, or sign up for yoga. I'll probably do everything but believe that God is talking to me. If my childhood issue with Samuel's story was that it felt too real for comfort, my issue now that is that it feels too unreal, impossible to integrate into the world I live in. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread, the writer of 1 Samuel says by way of a preface. Sound familiar? As Christians, we profess belief in a God who longs to speak to his children. Abandoning us to silence is presumably not what God desires to do. But as modern, scientifically inclined people, we don't sit easily with voices and prophetic callings. What would it take in our skeptical age to once again welcome the voice of God? What would it look like to retrain our secularized imaginations? To honor what we know of human psychology and suggestibility, and still hear the sacred when it breaks into our lives? These are huge questions, and I don't claim to know the answers. But Samuel's story does point me in a direction I find intriguing, a direction somewhat different from the one I heard in Sunday school. As the story begins, Samuel is ministering to the Lord under Eli. In a vivid sermon on this Old Testament passage, Barbara Brown Taylor describes what the boy prophet's life in the temple might have looked like. Quote, we can only guess what it was like for Samuel as the faithful brought their burnt offerings, their sin offerings, and their guilt offerings to the temple. They were burdened, ashen-faced people, most of them, hauling their stubborn animals up to the altar to be killed. There was a great deal of blood. Blood splashed on the altar, blood sprinkled on the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary. The burning incense did battle with the smell but could not beat it. The place stank, no getting around it. Maybe Samuel tended the cauldron where the sacrificial meat was boiled, or helped Eli locate the portion he was allowed to eat as a temple priest. Maybe Samuel was allowed to eat on some of the scraps himself. There was little else for a growing boy. At night he lay down by the Ark of God, the legendary throne of the invisible King Yahweh that Israel carried into battle at the head of her armies. It was reputed to contain all the sacred relics of the nation's past, a container of manna, 
Aaron's budded rod, the tablets of the covenant. Sleeping next to it had to be like sleeping in a graveyard or under a volcano. Not, in other words, a day or a boyhood spent in the park, but a boyhood spent in close proximity to all that was considered sacred in his day, a boyhood spent in the very household of God. Having grown up a pastor's daughter, always in and around the church, I can't help but relate in a tiny way to this aspect of Samuel's life. Over the years of his apprenticeship, he would have enjoyed an insider's view of religious life. The language of faith would have been his first language, the language he spoke most fluently. He would have handled holy objects, listened to whispered prayers, and witnessed moving conversions. Granted, he would also have seen the contradictions, the intrigues, the scandals, but his circumstances would have primed him to know God early and well, or so I'd like to assume. What the story reveals, however, is a surprise. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The easy interpretive move to make here is to say that there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God, which is true. But I wonder if the writer of 1 Samuel is also saying something bolder, something about the spiritual risk involved in becoming too insular, too churchy, something about the shadow side of human institutions, even the most well-meaning and well-run religious ones, something about the necessary role of the outsider as prophet. When I think about my own God-saturated upbringing, I'm filled with gratitude. I'm so glad I had the privilege to grow up in the church to be shaped from earliest memory by its rituals and rhythms. But Samuel's story gives me pause. Is it possible that my overfamiliarity has made it harder for me to hear new and unexpected words from God? Is it possible that my churchiness dulls my ears to his call? If so, I take comfort in the fact that God didn't give up on Samuel. He called, called, and called again. He called until Samuel learned how to listen. According to the religious hierarchies of the day, the people who should have heard God's voice in this story were Eli and his sons. They were the authorities, the ultimate insiders by birth and by vocation. But they were not the ones God chose. Instead, God chose Samuel, a child, a boy on the periphery, one whose capacity for openness and wonder was dulled, perhaps, but was still recoverable. A child who wasn't bound by the political interests of his elders, a child who could tolerate an unfamiliar voice and an uncomfortable message, a message that would upend the very institution he knew best. This week, people around the world honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., America's great civil rights leader and prophet. King was an outsider, perfectly positioned to speak truth to power. Like Samuel, King was willing to make his listeners uncomfortable, even at great cost to himself. The voice he obeyed cost him everything, but it also change the world. For books this week, we review Marilyn Robinson's Lila. In her new novel, Lila, Marilyn Robinson returns to the people and places of Gilead, the Depression-era setting of her earlier and much acclaimed books, Gilead and Home. This time, she gives us the wrenching story of Lila, the young and unlikely wife of John Ames, Gilead's elderly Congregationalist minister. The novel opens with a doll, a tough migrant woman, kidnapping the three- or four-year-old Lila from a life of dangerous neglect and raising her as best she can in the midst of homelessness, hunger, and fear. So begins Lila's shaky salvation, a salvation she fears and distrusts as thoroughly as she craves it. By the time Lila wanders into Gilead and meets Ames, she is a young woman crippled by self-loathing and almost feral with fear, a woman who flinches at even the kindest touch. The tender and awkward courtship that follows between the odd pair, 
forms the heart of the novel. As in her earlier work, Robinson steps away from the conventions of the realistic novel, bending time, employing formal language and dialogue, and playing deftly with point-of-view narration, to meditate on the spiritual questions which are both her passion and her forte. In Lila, she explores the damage done to a human soul subjected to shocking neglect, poverty, and abandonment. She looks unflinchingly at shame and at the essential loneliness which haunts the lives of her characters, even after they have dared to find companionship and love. To her great credit, the erudite Robinson gives us Lila's mind, uneducated and barely literate, without a hint of sentimentality or condescension, honoring her with the dignity she deserves. Readers who loved Robinson's earlier work will not be disappointed to return to Gilead one more time in this graceful and moving new novel. For movies, we review The Gathering of Swarms. Birds, bees, bats, and butterflies all do it. So do dozens of other animals all over the world. At 53 minutes, this PBS nature documentary about swarming behavior makes for a fantastic family movie night. In swarming behavior, a million minds act as one and exhibit fascinating collective decision-making about every aspect of life, food, shelter, predators, migration, and mating. As you would expect from a PBS production, both the photography and narration in this film are spectacular. There are emperor penguins in Antarctica, schools of sardines off the coast of South Africa, a million parakeets in the Australian outback, and the famous cicadas that emerge altogether after 17 years in the soil. My two favorites were the single swarm of 40 billion locusts that covers 400 square miles and travels 150 miles a day, and 20 million army ants in Tanzania that look for a new home. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. It's also available on the PBS website. And finally, to honor Martin Luther King Jr., we read, I Have a Dream. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 18, 2015. I'm Debbie Thomas.